Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture passage is Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, today's passage is on page 809. Again, our scripture reading, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to you on this Sunday morning, on this Christmas Eve to celebrate that great day when you sent your Son to come down to be with us. We ask once again that you would indeed be with us this morning. Would you be present with us by your spirit and through your word? And my prayer this morning is quite simple, that you would help me and sustain me as I open up this word that you have given us so that we might come to a fuller understanding of why your son came at Christmas. We ask this in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think if I were in your situation this morning, I might be wondering to myself, why are we looking at this passage on Christmas Eve? And you don't have to be seasoned at this to know that Christmas is traditionally all about the birth of Jesus. We think about the angelic announcement to Mary and to Joseph and to the shepherds in their fields. We think of the journey to Bethlehem, the manger, even the visit by the wise men. But this, I mean, this probably seems pretty far off from the topic of Christmas. That might be the case, but I don't think this is an instance of me just being too clever for my own good. Those of you who are laughing are laughing because you know sometimes I can be too clever for my own good. This is also not me trying to be a Grinch. 
I'm not trying to, you know, like evade Christmas themes or anything like that. No, I want to suggest this morning on this Christmas Eve that we cannot fully understand Christmas and what Christmas is all about apart from the temptation of Jesus. You see, the temptation of Jesus teaches us about the mystery of the incarnation. Incarnation is just a big word that means to to take on flesh. You can, you can think about, you know, that word carne, like carne asada, or you can think about like carnivore, like meat and meat eater. That's a crude way to put it, but that just kind of gives us a picture of what incarnation means. It is the idea to take on flesh, in this instance, to take on human flesh. And the whole point of Christmas, what, what Christians have believed all throughout history is that the eternal divine son of God became incarnate. He took on human flesh and in taking on human flesh, he took on all that comes with it. What a profound mystery that divinity would be wrapped in humanity that divinity would need to be held, clothed, nursed, fed. But he didn't just take on those experiences that are common to all newborns and infants. He came to take on the fullness, all the fullness of human experiences. And that includes, in fact, that necessarily includes the experience of being tempted. To be incarnate, to be human, is to be tempted. Listen, all of us have an idea of what that means. If you're a Christian, then you know all too well what that means. You know all too well that to be human means to be tempted, specifically to be tempted to sin, to be tempted to do things that we don't even actually want to do, or even to be tempted to want things that actually deep down we don't really want, but we can't help it. Not only do we know what it means to be tempted, but if you're a Christian, you know what it means to fail and to give in to temptation. And look, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I think you can still understand this whole idea of temptation. You still know from your own personal experience, as soon as you set some sort of standard for yourself, whatever that standard is, as soon as you say to yourself, you know what, I'm no longer going to do this thing, or from now on, I'm always going to do this thing. As soon as you do that, you know what it feels like to be tempted to give in and to break that very thing that you even made up and came up with that you want to do because being tempted and giving into temptation is just part of all of our human experience. And that's what makes the temptation of Jesus bound up with this entire idea of incarnation. The one who who entered our world at Christmas came to experience all that is common to humanity, including being tempted. But here's the thing that we see in this story. Jesus is tempted and tempted more intensely than most of us will ever likely be. 
But unlike you and me, Jesus never breaks. Now, Jesus came in order to succeed where you and I have only ever failed. And that's actually part of the entire purpose of what Christmas is all about. Jesus came. He wasn't just born to kind of come down and see what it might be like to be a person. He came to take on all that is true of the human experience in order to succeed where you and I, where we have always failed. And look, the implications of that, the implications of that statement for your life and for my life couldn't be bigger. And that's true this morning, whether you are a Christian or not. So let me do my best to show you that this morning, not just generally from Jesus' temptation, but from each of these three specific times that Jesus was tempted. There's three examples. We're going to look at at each one. Let's begin with the first one there in verses one to four. We can simply call it hunger and humanity. Right as chapter four of Matthew's gospel opens up, Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness. So right away, it's a clue because in the Bible, the wilderness is like the place of testing for God's people. And we're told right out of the gate that he goes there for the express purpose of experiencing temptation and not just any temptation, but directly by the devil himself. Matthew even calls him the tempter. Like this is the chief thing that he does that he's good at. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. Look, I know intermittent fasting is kind of getting popular and cool and all that stuff right now. Like this is not intermittent fasting. This is not Jesus trying to like lose a few pounds and like increase his focus and productivity at work or anything like that. This is extreme hunger, almost certainly unlike anything that you and I have ever experienced. And this is something that Jesus can only experience in his humanity. And that's exactly where the tempter targets him. He says, if you're really the son of God, command these stones to become bread. In other words, he just finds Jesus, he meets Jesus in his hunger and says, look, I mean, if you're the, the son of God, right, and that's going to come with some benefits, right? If you're the son of God, just why go hungry? Just turn these, these stones into bread and feed yourself. Why bother being hungry? And you might be wondering, okay, well, what's the big deal about that? Why is this even a, a temptation? Or why would it matter? Like, why would it even be a big deal if Jesus gave in and was like, all right, and turned a stone into bread and ate it? Well, you have to remember what happened right before this. If you were here last week, you might remember that right before this scene, Jesus was baptized. The whole point of Jesus being baptized was his way of saying, was publicly declaring that he was coming down to take on our situation as humans. He was going to become a representative for all humanity, which is why, by the way, that's why Satan actually wants to come after him in the first place. Just like Satan went after the very first representative of all humanity, Adam in the garden and Adam gave in and plunged humanity into darkness. And so as soon as Jesus comes on the scene to say, I am choosing, willingly choosing to come down and to take on 
all of humanity and all their problems and all their issues, I'm going to represent them. I am going to represent them as a human. The very thing that Satan tries to undo is Jesus' humanity. Like, hey, come on, what good is it if you're the son of God and you can't use your, your power, if you can't use this power to kind of make a little bit of bread? Oh, you want to be their representative, huh? Well, it doesn't feel so good to be human and to be hungry and needy, does it? Listen, friends, Satan is not only attacking Jesus here. He is actually attacking you and me. It doesn't seem like that big a deal if Jesus gives in, but if he does, he actually fails the entire rescue mission that he is on right here from the beginning. If he's going to represent us, which is the whole point of why he came, is the whole point of why he was baptized to represent us. If he's going to do that, if he's going to represent us as humans, he has to represent us as a human. And I don't know about you, but the last time I went hungry, I couldn't turn something into bread to feed myself. That's the whole point of this first temptation. No, Jesus must encounter this and experience this and take this on and face it and succeed. And if he's going to do it, he must do it as a human, as a man. Which is exactly why Jesus responds and says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written. Listen, the point is not just that Jesus is able to to quote the Bible. No, he is very specifically using a verse from the book of Deuteronomy. When God chose the nation of Israel after his first representative, Adam, failed, he chose the nation of Israel to be his representative. And they were like, all right, that sounds great. We're going to be God's special people on earth. Like, sign us up. That sounds wonderful. And as soon as they sign up, they get shot right out into the wilderness and they run out of food. And they said, forget this. (laughs) We don't want to do this. We didn't know being God's representative meant that we'd ever be hungry. Let's just turn turn around and, and go back. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Jesus, as the new true representative of humanity, will succeed by living out this Lesson that man, that that being a human means living by every word that comes from God. In other words, Jesus is not just experiencing, he's not just experiencing humanity, he's actually showing us what it looks like and what it really ought to look like to be a human in this world. And friends, in some ways, I think we can just take some encouragement here to just be reminded that to be human by definition is to need, to, by definition to be human is to depend on something outside of ourselves and not merely just calories. Hunger is a reflection of a bigger reality that, that to be human is to depend on God to sustain our lives for us in every single possible way. So temptation number one. Jesus holds up. 
he holds up even in his hunger, in his humanity. Now look, before I move on to the next one, I realize that some of us might just be hung up on this whole devil thing in the first place. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are sitting here and you're like, come on, really? Like, are we really talking about like devils and, and demons? I mean, believing that might not seem, it might not seem to kind of fit in with what we typically think of as a, a modern view of the world, and especially in light of how, how that stuff is typically like portrayed in films, you know, with like scary monsters and people like looking all weird and with distorted voices and stuff like that. But I want to suggest that you should actually consider the existence of a real supernatural evil being as a legitimate, reasonable explanation for, for why the world is actually the way it is. Because here's the thing, if you don't believe in that, if you don't believe in an actual supernatural being who personifies and influences evil, if you don't believe that, that means that, that you have to say, you've got no other choice to say that all the evil in the world, all the violence, the, the genocide in history, all the injustice, the racism, the inequality, the abuse, and so on, all of it, that's, if there's no supernatural evil influence, then you have to say that all that is simply just what people are like. That's just humanity. And look, I'm not suggesting that there's any freedom to kind of use the existence of supernatural evil to excuse human behavior. Someone can say the devil made me, made me do it all they want and we still hold them accountable and expect them to pay for whatever it is that they may have done. But strange as it may seem to us in our modern day, I think that Believing in a real, actual, personal, supernatural evil better explains the actual world, modern or otherwise. It actually better explains the world that we actually find ourselves in. And when we see its true character here, that it's not the, the scary monsters with, with horns, but actually it's this cold, calculated deceit and trickery, it's actually even far more scary. That's what the tempter does. He uses lies and trickery and deceit that sounds logical to convince us to live in ways that we actually ought not to live. He's going to try it again. He's going to try it again in this next attempt to go after Jesus. We could call this one testing and trusting there in verses 5 to 7. And we go from, from extreme hunger to extreme heights. Like literally, Satan takes Jesus up to the, to the very pinnacle of the temple, which would have been the highest place, the highest building on the highest, I mean, we say mountain, but it's really kind of a glorified rocky hill, but it's the highest place in that area. In fact, right next to the highest peak or pinnacle of the temple would have been overlooking this place called the Kidron Valley, which was the lowest place around the Temple Mount. So there's this, this juxtaposition of extreme high and extreme low. All of that would have just dramatically increased the feeling of danger. And listen, I'm not embarrassed to admit that I have what I would call a healthy fear of heights. But there's a difference between heights in the sense of like something that's high, but you're actually like meant to be, 
to be on that and something that you're not actually meant to be on at all. So like I can remember, for example, like in the army, you know, they'd create these high obstacle courses, you would climb them, but you kind of knew like, this whole thing is just designed to kind of like test my fear of heights. It's actually got to be safe. There's like safety nets around here. So you like, you'd be up there and it wasn't actually that scary or like, you know, in a perfectly good helicopter getting ready to jump out. But you knew like, okay, I'm supposed to do that. There's, there's training for all that kind of thing. There's a difference between that and being perched on top of the equivalent of an ancient skyscraper with a pitched roof with ancient shingles that could all kind of easily crack and come loose underfoot. In other words, nobody is supposed to be up there. This is not a natural place to go and take a stroll. This is a place where you would absolutely be afraid of and expect to lose your footing. And if you did, it would be a deadly scenario. And so Satan creates this scenario on purpose precisely so that he can challenge Jesus in the very area that Jesus already put forward his complete and total trust in God. Satan takes him up there and says, oh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Oh, you want to trust God so much then, huh? Oh, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, I can play that trick too. If you really want to trust God so much, why don't you just go ahead and throw yourself down because if you really are the son of God, then you know that the scriptures say, he's actually, this is Satan quoting scripture back at Jesus. It's like he's saying, oh, okay, you want to quote it at me? I can quote it right back at you. He quotes Psalm 91. He says, for it is written, he will command the angels concerning you. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here's the whole irony here. The whole point of Psalm 91 is actually to get us to trust God. And what the tempter is doing is twisting it. He's using the very word designed to bring us or to bring about trust in us to try to get Jesus to question whether or not God really cares about him and whether or not God really is actually trustworthy. In fact, he's calling into Jesus, or he's calling Jesus' identity into question. If you really are the son of God. We talk about what it means to be human. If hunger doesn't get you, then certainly doubt and fear will. So Satan's whole strategy here is to tempt Jesus to force God's hand into proving that God is actually good enough to be trusted. And once again, Jesus holds up. He comes back right away with another, it is written of his own. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Just like last time, he's not just quoting the Bible just to show that he can, you know, quote it and memorize it. No, he's quoting a very specific passage in Deuteronomy that recalls Israel's wandering through the wilderness and they tested God. They came to a place where they, they ran out of water and as soon as they did, like, like immediately, as soon as they they started to feel the fear of, oh no, what are we going to do? They immediately began to doubt God's presence with them and God's care for them. Like they actually said, the Lord is not, out, is not with us out here in the desert. 
God is not here. He just brought us out here to die. Now listen, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that. Some of you are maybe tempted to think, oh, what faithless Israelites. But I have to tell you this morning that I don't think I would have done any better. And you know why? Because people do things when they are afraid. I mean, if you want to find what's really inside us as humans, make us afraid. Put us in a position where we are afraid, where our doubts are all presented right back to us in our own eyes, and what comes out of us then, we can be sure that's really what's in us. But listen, here's the thing. Once again, I mean, I think there's actually some encouragement here because we're learning about what it means to be human. To be human means inevitably that you will be afraid. To be human means that inevitably you will be in a situation where you're tempted to doubt God's presence with you, his care for you, his goodness, his, his trustworthiness. And listen, when you're in that spot, you might be tempted to do something to force God's hand. Or maybe not. Maybe you would not actually be tempted to do something as drastic as this to force God's hand. Maybe it's only even in just making a demand in the quietness of your mind or in your heart to God, saying something like, God, you know what? If you really cared about me, you, then you must do this one thing for me. Listen, <laughs> this is not just some abstract stuff. Like this is real flesh and blood human existence. I mean, some of you are going through things like this right now that will absolutely shake you and test you at your core to challenge you whether you really do trust God. I mean some real, hard, heavy things. I mean, just yesterday, I received a text message that I think highlights this perfectly. The person wasn't even thinking about this passage, but they were talking about just how hard it is to live as embodied human beings, flawed in this world, so easily tempted to doubt God's goodness. The text read this, the hard part is not believing that God exists. I'm not suggesting that people don't struggle to believe that. But at the end of the day, just believing in his existence, like generally, that's not the real hard thing. The hard part, the text goes on, the hard part is trusting him and trusting that he is good when we're surrounded by darkness. But listen, here's the really good news about this. God knows exactly what's going on in you. He knows he knows you're going to face doubts. He knows you're going to face questions. He knows that you are going to feel tempted to think that he does not have your ultimate good and mind. Well, guess what? That doesn't mean that you shouldn't come to him anyway. 
that is actually why Jesus came. He came to experience what it's like to be human. He came to experience all that, to experience all that and to not give in. Jesus essentially says, listen, I don't care what position you put me in, Satan. I don't care what position life puts me in. I am not, I am never going to force God's hand. I'm going to trust that God is good, that God is with me, that God is for me, even if I can't see what he is up to right here at the moment. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to really be a human that trusts God no matter what. And Jesus came to do that. He came to succeed where you and I always fail. So, Jesus to Satan zero. He gives it one more try. Let's just call this last one glory and gain. It's there in verses 8 to 11. The tempter takes Jesus on a high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. All that makes them weighty and attractive and, and tempting. Look, on the face of it, this temptation kind of seems more straightforward than the previous two. Like, on the face of it, this seems like just simple quid pro quo. Like, hey, all the combined glory in the world gained by you in exchange for what? Just a little bit of worship. I mean, who of us doesn't want power and glory? Like, I'm sure there are some of us here that are thinking like, well, wait a minute, like, I don't want that. Like, I don't, I don't want all the glory of all the kingdoms in the whole world. Like, I'm not that unreasonable. I don't want that. I just want like, a, I just want like a little bit. Like, I want like just a little bit of glory. Like, just enough money so that I can live comfortably and people are, look at my life and they're impressed by all that I do. Or, or just enough like approval in other people's eyes so they look at me and they're like, oh, wow, this person is is so great. Like, I don't want all the glory of the kingdom of the world, just a little bit. Well, listen, the fact that many of us would actually be tempted by far less than what Satan is offering doesn't make the point of the story any less significant. Now, the tempter knows that we humans crave glory, and he knows that we're wired to worship. In other words, he knows that we will give glory to whatever or whoever it is that we think can give us the gain that we need to solve all our problems. But once again, it seems straightforward, just like a, a simple exchange. But once again, there's another little trick up Satan's sleeve here. Now, I'm not sure. I'm not sure Satan actually could have given what he promised. I mean, there is a sense in which ever since the first representative failed, there is a sense in which all the, the kingdoms of this world are in some way under the power and influence and dominion of the evil one. But even still, they may be in the power of his grip, but I'm not sure they're really his to give. In fact, what I do know for sure is that ultimately speaking, they actually belong to Jesus already by divine right. 
And I think it's reasonable to suggest that Satan knew that too. I mean, after all, Satan already quoted from Psalm 91, which means he had to know about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Speaking of the then king of Israel, the Messiah, but anticipating a far greater future savior king who would come later, namely this Jesus who takes on human flesh and steps into our situation Saying of him, it says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And Jesus already has a claim by divine right to all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. It's as if Satan is thinking to himself, okay, I know what Psalm 2 says. So I must know what it is that ultimately this son of God is after. Ultimately, the thing that most, must be most driving him is getting all the kingdoms of the world that he's been promised. Except he has greatly miscalculated what it is that Jesus most wants. That's why Jesus says to him in response, once again, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Friends, this has always been Satan's biggest miscalculation right here. He assumes he knows what Jesus most wants and he assumes, I mean, he, he cannot wrap his mind around the idea that someone would actually just love God for God and would just want to worship God solely for seeing God as worthy of being worshipped. Satan can only conceive of somebody worshipping God in order to get some other thing from him. And no wonder why he would think that. Because the entire record of all human history has demonstrated to Satan that that is true. All of us will ultimately be tempted to worship God only for what we think he might be able to give to us. Here's the other thing. This may have actually been more tempting to Jesus than Satan even realized. I think Satan knew about Psalm 2. What I don't think Satan knew was what was going to be in store down the road in Jesus' own humanity. Friends, I don't think that Satan could foresee that this same one who was born at Christmas, who, who took on human flesh, who represented us, who succeeds where we fail, I don't think that Satan could see that one day that would lead him to go all the way to a cross where he would be put to death by the same human hands that he came to represent and save. I don't think Satan saw that coming, but Jesus did. But Jesus did, and here is an opportunity for him to get all the kingdoms of the earth by shortcutting and by cutting that incredibly painful process. But Jesus says, absolutely not. Because at the end of the day, I'm not interested primarily in all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. At the end of the day, what Jesus is most interested above all, above everything else, is worshiping God just 
for God, and that is it. And that's why this is the decisive blow. Be gone, Satan, and he's gone. Ironically, God sends his angels to come and minister to him. The very thing that Satan tried to use to tempt Jesus to force God's hand. Friends, what we see is that Jesus came in order to succeed where we, you and I have always failed. He came to, to succeed where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where you and I consistently fail. He came in order to succeed. And like I said earlier, the implications of that couldn't be bigger. But listen, I want to say right now that he did not come in order to succeed where we failed simply so that he could, he could rub our noses in it. I mean, you might be here this morning and thinking, you know, well, yeah, okay, we always fail and all we're doing here is looking at how Jesus always succeeds. And maybe, that, maybe you think the design of that is to somehow make you feel, feel more guilty about yourself. Friends, that is not it. Maybe that's perhaps why some of us don't like coming to church, but save Christmas and Easter and a couple other days throughout the year. Maybe when you even come into places like this, you just feel the sense of, the sense of guilt, almost like God is condemning you. And I would challenge you, I would say that, that voice, that voice is most likely coming from a different character in the story. Because God sent his son not to come into the world to condemn you. God sent his son into the world to take on your situation, to succeed where you and I only fail in order to share his victory with us. That's why the temptation of Jesus sheds light on the incarnation of Jesus. He came to be our representative so that he can succeed and share his victory in everything that comes along with his victory with us so that God can now treat us just as if we had succeeded with all the victory and all the triumph and all the success that his son had. I don't know if this illustration will help you at all. It helped me some at least this past week. There was a team a handful of years ago that won the Super Bowl. I'm not even going to say... It doesn't matter what the team was. Don't assume you know who I'm talking about. There was a team a few years ago who won the Super Bowl. And as you may or may not know, when a team wins the Super Bowl, uh, shortly thereafter, they all receive rings. Everyone who was on the winning team who competed in the game... The, like the, the, the pinnacle of the contest of the whole football season, if you win the last game, you're the only team to kind of go out from the playoffs with a victory. Everyone who took part in that victory gets a, a ring. And the ring is this very valuable thing, but it's even more than just the, the silver and the gold and the jewels. It's symbolic of, of winning in the biggest situation. There was a running back who was on that team. He was on the active roster during the preseason, maybe even actually into the first couple games of the season. But here's the thing. He was terrible. He was terrible and everyone knew it and he knew it, which is why the team cut him. And after that, no other team picked him up. He spent the rest of the season like you and me watching football at home on the couch, which was why he was so surprised that after the season ended a few weeks later, there was a ring at the door 
Someone standing there with a package delivered to him with his very own personalized Super Bowl championship ring. And he said, wait, how could I possibly get this? How could I possibly get this? The only thing that I did for the team was actually fail at the very thing I was put on the team to do. And the owner of the team simply said, that doesn't matter. Just the fact that you were associated with us means you get in on the victory. Friends, that is exactly what Christmas is all about. Yes, you and I have only ever failed, but God sent his son to step into the world so that he could succeed and he could share the victory with us. The only thing that we need to bring, even in our failure, the only thing that we need is to be associated with Jesus, to trust in him, to believe in him, to, to put our faith in him, to say we are, gonna, we are going to choose to identify the entirety of our lives with him, our representative, the one who came to identify with us in every single way. Friends, that's the primary purpose why this passage is here in our Bibles. It's not to tell you some secret cheat code for how, to, for how you can have success when you're tempted. This isn't here to teach you like if you feel tempted to sin, just quote the Bible and it'll all go away. No, it won't. If that's your approach, you will fail and Satan can probably quote it better than you can. The point of this passage, and look, and I don't say that to say that there's no hope here for you and I who do know Christ and we have trusted in Christ and we've been following with Christ and we still continue to fail and to fall. There is actually some encouragement here for us. The point is not that we should go and face temptation armed with Bible verses. The point is that you and I can face temptation armed with the person of Christ because Christ removes all the, the seedbed for temptation in our lives, all the things that cause us to really be tempted to hunger and fear and doubt and desire for glory. We no longer have to worry about getting all those things for ourselves because we have one who came, who lived perfectly, who showed us that we can indeed trust our Father in heaven no matter what it looks like down here and everything in the end will be okay. And that is real help for you and I when we are tempted to give in. Well, I need to, I need to shut this thing down because you all want to get those candles lit and sing Silent Night. <laughs> yeah. I'll conclude by saying this, speaking of Silent Night. Every year I have a moment where the season just hits me. And I'm not saying that this is like a normal thing. I'm not saying like if like every one of us needs to have this moment. This is just my unique personal experience. Every year around this time, I just have a moment where just the weight and the glory and the beauty of Christmas just, just hits me. Sometimes it's early. Sometimes it's that first Sunday of Advent when the lights are up and, you know, we're talking about the birth of Jesus. Sometimes it comes later. This year it was later for me. This year it actually hit me on Friday morning. We dropped our kids off to school. And all the teachers and faculty were on the bottom, the ground level of the school, and they wheeled the piano out, and they were singing Christmas hymns and carols, and all the kids were in their pajamas for pajama day at school, singing with the teachers. And we came 
to Silent Night. And a couple things hit me. First, it hit me that, you know, it probably wasn't that silent of a night. Just something about, you know, giving birth in the ancient world in a stable of all places. I mean, something tells me it wasn't such a silent night. But I don't say that to ruin the song. The song is still every bit as appropriate to sing. As I listened to those words this past week, it just hit me. It's still appropriate because of the calm, because of the peace that can exist in us because he came. Because the reality is, is that we are human. We are weak. We are needy. We do doubt. But we can know that he came and stepped into all that for us. And because he did, because he came, we can know that it is all going to be okay because God was faithful to all of his promises to send someone to represent us who would not let us down. Everything's going to be okay. Because that one was perfectly faithful, succeeding where we never could, everything is going to be okay. Friends, that's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. God, there are no words that we could express to adequately capture the depths of our gratitude for sending your son to take on our situation, to experience all that we experience, but to never fail, to only always succeed for us. God, I pray this morning that you would enable each of us to give him our lives, to put our lives into the hands of the one who has proven that he's trustworthy to represent us. We ask all this in his name, in Jesus' name, on this Christmas Eve. Amen.